This morning, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. Uh, Luke 24, we'll get there in a moment and, of course, have it on the screen. This morning, we tie a bow on this series that we preached all of August, uh, this series entitled The Meaning of the Bible, asking big questions about the Bible. What is it? Who did it come from? How can it shape us? What is its purpose in our life? What effect can it have? We're going to talk this morning about how to read it. I'm going to give you some practices, I think, that will be real helpful to you. We dropped some big words as we've looked at the Bible and a variety of, of Scripture. Um, we talked about understanding the story, that it is a story. There's a protagonist. That protagonist is not you. You're not the center of the story. It is God. It is not about you. It's about His glory. There is a sweeping, unfolding narrative to the Bible, and we need to enter into that story. I taught you uh, something sort of fancy, but yet it's simple, the meta-narrative of the Bible of understanding that it is a story. How many of us like a good story? Like we love to be swept up in a story. My wife and I, as newlyweds, lived in Miami for a number of years. And a couple of nights ago, we found ourselves uh, watching CNN and the story of Elion. Do you remember that youngster who, on uh, at the, I guess the age of eight years old, was on a raft from Cuba and ended up in America in Miami? And it became the legal wranglings and the tusslings of where does he belong? Does he go back with his father? He lost his mother. Does he go back with his dad? Does he stay in Miami? It was just this powerful emotional story that some people believe actually affected the uh, the Bush-Gore election of 2000. And we were, we were living there, uh, moving away from there at the time to California, but we were watching that and just wrapped up in a story, especially as it's personified by real people. But like that story, there's much about it that we don't understand. There, it's a historical event. It happened. There are people. There's a culture and in many ways a language that's different than ours. And we have to understand that as we read the Bible. I've given you a big helpful clue to read the Bible literarily, to understand the genre. It is divine, given through human authors, but is God's perfect inspired word to us. But there's that human elephant, element, rather, not elephant, but human, uh, human, human element of the scripture of God working through. It's the word of God, but it's also the words of Moses and King David and the prophet Isaiah and the biographer Luke. And we see God working through the mess of people to give us his perfect word. And we can relate our lives to it. But we have a problem. What we say, church? We address the elephant. There you go, in the room. See how I just weave that in? We address the elephant in the room, which is we have a problem with the Bible. We don't read it. We certainly don't read it like we claim. And I'm going to talk about that uh, toward the end of the sermon today, just about how, uh, how we can read it. But let's jump in and let's look. By the way, the meta narrative. do you remember it? creation five parts creation the fall Israel you have to understand the Bible you're not going to understand much of the Bible if you don't understand this chosen nation of Israel the story within the story we talked about last week like the band of brothers in World War II there's this this group of people that God chose and through them and all their dysfunction through messy stuff like slavery and polygamy and women's rights and really difficult things God chooses to work through them and he moves the story forward and out of them despite them he draws out a messiah 400 years of silence and a baby is born in bethlehem and that's that's the next act the person of jesus the savior of the world it's who it's all about remember in john 5 a couple of weeks ago we put that passage up and we said man here's jesus talking to religious people and the religious people they knew the law but they, the Torah, but they didn't see him in it. And can I tell you, church, that is the key, is to see Jesus in all of Scripture. Luke chapter 24, um, 
We're in Act 5, by the way. We're the church, and we're act, asked to put on our inner thespian and to be actors in the play. Not hypocrites, not frauds, but to play our real part in the story as God moves the story forward as followers of Jesus, empowered by His Spirit and shaped by His Word. If you were here last week, 2 Timothy 3, we said all Scripture. The Scripture says it. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness that you may be equipped Thoroughly equipped for every good work. The goal is not for you to come to church and learn the Bible. The goal is for you to come to church and to be equipped to live it out. It is not enough to know it, to read it, or to believe it. But it must be lived. Luke chapter 24, a pretty good stretch here, so fasten your seatbelts. I tend to read fast. I'll read about as fast as they allow me on the screen. This is, by the way, Jesus interacting with a couple of disciples they're on the road to Emmaus. Some of you familiar with this? Nod your head if some of you are. Just, yeah. Look at these prideful people. They're just so proud that they know some of the Bible. That very day, this Luke 24, 13 to 27, and then we're going to hop to 44 and 45 of Luke 24, if you have an open Bible. All right. Some of you are anti-screen. I just love that. Yeah, here we go. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. A little bit of humor here. But their eyes were, their eyes kept, were, I'm sorry, were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that, are, that have happened here in these days? Like, are you living under a rock? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women... Of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses." And all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now to verse 44 and 45. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, here we go again, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And I love this phrase. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I've taught you or reminded some of you that the, the Bible never refers it itself as the Bible. The two most common words in the New Testament or what you've seen here, uh, scriptures, that's the most common. The second most common is the word. Some of you use that, like you spent time in the word. I had a roommate in college, he called his bed the word, so he spent time in the word. And, uh, but the scriptures and the word are the most common uh, expressions. In the Greek there, scripture is graphe, and it means God inspired, God breathed this word uh, to you and I. Um, the Bible doesn't say Bible. It says, it says Scripture. It says the Word. And John 1, that disciple says in the beginning was the what? Logos was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Hebrews 4, 
12. The Word of God is living and active. You know, I used to think that that meant that was referring to the Bible, but perhaps it's referring to Jesus uh, being the living Word, living and active, able to walk with you to discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's logos, the word, grafe, the, the scripture. And so in, in the scripture, in the New Testament, Jesus had a Bible. Do you know that? He had a Bible. Does it, do any of you know his first sermon? What did he do? He opened it up and he read from Isaiah 61 in the temple. Beautiful, beautiful stretch of scripture. Uh, very appealing to the church today about just relief of captains, captives and giving sight to the blind and just justice and love and mercy in our, in our world today. Jesus had a Bible. It was a little different than the Bible we had, at least how it was ordered. But in the New Testament, you see this sort of threefold moniker of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. The law is the Torah. It is the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then uh, the, the, there's a word, I'll put it up for you here in Hebrew. This is the, the Old Testament, Tanakh. And that first word, Ta, is the Torah part. Then uh, Naive, and then uh, the last part there has to do with, the first part is the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then it's the, the, the prophets. Now those are um, delineated differently for us. In fact, the Bible that Jesus had, there were 24 Old Testament books. Your Old Testament has 39. Well, what happened? Did we add a bunch of books in the canon of scripture. Uh, here's what happened. By the way, for two and a half minutes, I'm going to put on my nerd hat. So some of you just check out, okay? There'll be like five of you with me. We'll walk through these two and a half minutes together. Some of you stayed up late, right, for Meriwether McGregor. You're sleeping anyway. But let's just put on your nerd hat here. This is something referred to as the canon of scripture. And there's another strata of nerdy people that are studying. It's the canonical look at the scripture. In other words, not so much studying the Bible itself, but how we got the Bible, how it was edited, ordered, and arranged. And it's really fascinating to learn this, uh, at least for some nerds in the room. Are you any nerds in the room? Okay, you're, you get made fun of and beat up. They take your lunch money at school. That's you. So to the nerds in the room, the canon of scripture is what the rule of scripture is. It's the arrangement of it. And the 25 Old Testament books in Jesus' time, you know, we have Samuel 1st and 2nd, Kings 1st and 2nd, Chronicles 1st and 2nd. But in his day, it was just Samuel, Kings, and Chronicle. We taught last year from Nehemiah. We didn't do a book st study so much as a character sketch. And I taught you then that Nehemiah and Ezra were one book in Jesus' time. And then the 12 minor prophets. Can you guys name the 12 minor prophets if you're at a party or a small group? In fact, do that. Every small group leader, especially to the new people in the group, ask them this week to name the 12 the 12 minor prophets, Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Nahum and Micah and Malachi and Haggai and Zephaniah and Zechariah. Uh, those are the Old Testament known as the minor prophets, but they were clumped together as one book. And that's why the discrepancy of Jesus' day of those 24, 25, and the 39 that we have. But here's what's interesting. I'm about to get out of the nerd part of the sermon. But those who are studying this canonical look at the Scripture... They're seeing something beautiful and brilliant and intelligent and divine in its arrangement. And they, they have introduced something called the seam of Scripture of the Old Testament. Uh, a hinge point, a transitional thing, a segue. But more than that, it's a clue of how we are to read our Bibles. So they say that the seam between the law and the prophets is, you ready for this, is Joshua 1. And the scene between the prophets and the psalms or the writings is Psalm 1. 
All right, anybody dialed in right now? Okay, this is for a few of us who know our Bible. Think about Joshua 1 and think about Psalm 1. And some of those very words are verbatim. In Joshua 1, it tells us to be strong and to be courageous, to be careful, to obey everything in the law that the servant Moses gave to us. That's the the Torah. Be careful to observe everything in it, to meditate on it, to day and night. That expression is used often in Scripture. Day and night, have it on your lips, have it in your heart. Do not let it depart, and you will be successful. God will prosper you. Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the one who what? Who doesn't uh, stand in the path of sinners or walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Day and night he meditates in it. He will be successful. He will prosper. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Remember, this is the Middle East. This was a long time ago. They don't have trees like we have trees. If you live in Fondren and Bellhaven, we got some trees, don't we? I mean, we had a tree fall on our house in May. We got some trees around here, but back in the Middle East, it was more precious, more rare. But you will be, if you meditate day and night, if you obey the word, if you delight in it, you will be like a tree planted. You will yield fruit in its season, and your leaf will not wither. Do you see the commonality there? These are hinge points in understanding the Tanakh of reading the ancient text. And in them, it gives us not just transitions and segues, but helpful clues of how to read the Bible. So today, you don't want my job, but today, for these moments that are left, I want to talk to you about reading the Bible. I want to give you some words from Scripture about reading it, some helpful clues, and talk about that. The first word, I'm going to give you three words. The first word is this word, delight. The word delight means to take pleasure in, to draw joy from. It means to desire to want something, to really want something. What do you delight in? You guys know Jeff Hightower. He's sitting on the front row here, my left, your right, if you want to look at him. Here's a picture of Jeff and his family. For those who don't know, Jeff is our executive pastor doing a very unexecutive thing here, fighting with his children. It looks like Charlie and Macy are getting beat. And Parker's on top, getting some leverage there. But there's Jeff Hightower. Um, I love Jeff. I'm the, sort of the wow guy. He's the, the how guy around here. He handles a lot of the details. Thank God for Jeff. And here's Jeff back in Memphis in February at the FedEx Forum at a Garth Brooks concert. Jeff knows every word to every 90s Garth Brooks song. Susan and I were on a dinner date with him a couple of weeks ago, and Ashley told us, she said, Robert, when, when Garth Brooks walked out, Jeff said, he looked at me and said, I got chills. I just have chills. That is to take delight. When something, you long for it, like you want to be there, it gives you chills, you, you sing along, you anticipate. That is this word, delight. And we are invited to delight in the word. Now, how do we get there? How do you get there? How do you uh, delight in the word? I'm going to say some important things that I hope help some of you who, uh, who desire so. But how do you delight in the word? Think of the word palate. Think of, think of uh, your appetite. When I was about to become a parent, I was hanging around with people who were parents, and I would look at them and judge their kids about their diet and what they would eat and not eat. And I remember uh, it, with a feeling of superiority, I remember thinking, when I become a parent, my kids will not be picky eaters. 
And I am humbled and wrong to tell you that at least two of my three are very picky eaters. And you break out a bag of chips, and they're just, they just eat chips. They don't even want the salsa. How sad is that? Like the salsa makes the chips, and I've watched them over time appreciate salsa. And you know when you have a picky eater, a child at the table, what, what, what are the parents, the adults are eating, and what do they say? You're missing out. You're missing out. And a palate can change, but how do you change someone's palate? How do you change what you crave? When I was a younger single guy, I hate to admit this, this is like really bad, but I used to desire Taco Bell, the drive through late at night, coming home, sports center, some smelly roommates at home, right? And I used to desire Taco Bell. Do you know Taco Bell serves breakfast? If you go to Taco Bell for breakfast, you've given up on the day. I mean, just absolutely given up on the day. You, you want to accomplish nothing that day. But look, look, Taco Bell, like I, I, I'm just telling you, I used to desire it. I used to crave it. I used to pull in the window for convenience and pick it up. And now I just, it's just kind of nasty, isn't it? Like that's our position with Fondren Church. Like we have a theological position on Taco Bell and it's, it's nasty. How do you change your palate? You eliminate something in order to open yourself up for something. Look at the fast food places. They offer like Wendy's and McDonald's. They offer like the apples, right? But then there's the fries. And if you're looking at the fries, you don't want the apples, right? If you've tasted the fries, it's hard to make a transition to the apples. But for us, Scripture invites us to delight, to desire Scripture, to have a hunger and to, to crave it. There is the second word that I want to submit to you beyond uh, delight, and it's the word meditate. It's the word meditate. Now, that word, it has um, great meaning in our day. It's gathering momentum as a habit or as a practice of people around the world. It's a buzzword. It's a big thing, but it's sort of controversial in the church. Would you agree with that. If you say the word meditation, it's sort of controversial uh, in this series. I'm making some of you nervous uh, as I talk about the Bible, um, but this is one of those words that can make uh, others nervous as well. But the word meditation, I want to talk about it for a second, but the idea the stigma that we have in the church is the Eastern view of meditation, which is about emptying the mind and looking in. I went to do some yoga not too long ago, and there was a big sign that said, uh, everything you need is inside yourself, to which I thought, BS, I'm here to stretch my spine, right? But I just want to say that everything you need is not inside yourself. And so biblical Hebrew, the Tanakh meditation in the 20 plus times that it's mentioned is not an emptying of the mind and looking inward. It's a filling of the mind and looking outward. We can have thoughts of God as we meditate and how about this because we have his word we can have thoughts from God thoughts of God thoughts <clears throat> from God Isaiah the prophet <clears throat> gives us a picture he uses one of the Hebrew words there for meditation he gives us this picture of a lion growling over its prey a great lion growling over its prey that word growl is the word for meditate now, you probably don't spend any time in the jungles, hadn't gone on a safari tour anytime soon, probably don't watch much of the Discovery Channel anymore. When it gets to that part of lions growling and devouring its prey, you, you turn away. So just think about your dog, okay? What was yesterday? 
Yesterday was National Dog Day, and about 96% of you posted uh, a picture of your dog on social media. That's a good thing. We celebrate that. But picture your dog and a bone. What does your dog do when you give it a bone? It, it takes it, and, and, and if your dog is like my dog, it exhibits some very weird behavior. It's very strange. My dog will take the bone to one of its favorite spots, usually a piece of furniture that we paid good money for, and he'll put the bone down, and he does it. Uh, he gyrates a little bit and does some weird movements and moves his head and gets on the bone. He puts his 104-pound uh, fur on the bone and rolls over it a little bit. And then he'll take it and do different gestures. And eventually he'll take the bone and begin to chew on it, to ingest it, to savor it. He growls over that bone. And that is the Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Testament's picture for us of meditating, that we would be nourished by it that we would let it get inside of us but now let's be real revelation chapter 10 and revelation has a lot of symbolism it is genre wise it's apocalyptic literature which is there's just not much of that anymore but in revelation a, a book that's challenging to understand it, it gives us a picture in revelation 10 of an angel handing a scroll to john and the scroll, we believe, is symbolic for the scriptures. The angel hands the scroll to John and says these two curious words, eat this. He doesn't say read this, study this, memorize this. He says eat this. And John, what does he do? He eats it and then he writes, it was sweet like honey in my mouth and it was bitter as gall in my stomach. What a wonderful an accurate and realistic and freeing view Scripture gives us toward its end of Scripture. There are times, if we're honest, or don't we want to be honest? There are times when we're honest when the Word of God to us, when the Scripture is sweet as honey in our mouth. Can you think of any of those times? Like you met with God and you read and like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word aptly spoken. I'm quoting from Proverbs. And God's word is that for you that day. And you, you get a word and it's good. It's a needed word and you pass it on or you post it. It's just a good word and it's sweet like honey in your mouth. You eat it. But there are times you eat the word or attempt to eat the word and it is gall. It's bitter like gall in your stomach. Now why? Why is that true? We, we've talked about some, I think... Some of the reason it's bitter as gall in our stomach is just as hard. There's, there's some stuff about it. Uh, when you begin to read the Bible, there are, as we have mentioned, there are travel diaries and there are family trees and legal documents and genealogies and ar architectural specifications and geological surveys and dietary laws and a lot that is um, written that's hard for us to understand. So we read that and we say, whoa, it's kind of bitter. Like, why is this in there? It's bitter as gall in the stomach. Sometimes the scripture for us is bitter as gall in our stomach because of what it says. You've been spreading gossip. You've been running your tongue, running your mouth, talking somebody down. And that day you come to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Only that which is good to building up other people. Now, how are you feeling? If you're reading it and you're seeking to ingest it, you have a very bitter feeling in your gut. And the scripture can be that way 
for you. Not everything that is preached, not every passage that is read, not every devotional time you have should be time of great enjoyment. Sometimes we need the bitter pill. Sometimes it has to sit in our stomach and move us and hurt us because we change only when we experience pain. And that's the effect that the word can have in our lives. So our three words, the first is to delight, the second word is to meditate, and the third word is a very simple one, it's the word obey. Joshua 1, hearkening back to it, one of the seam passages in the canon, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, it says, blessed, the man, the person who will succeed or prosper is the one who what? Who does the word of God. He hears it and he does something about it. Now, it's bizarre in the West. This is different than the, in the Tanakh, but in the, in the West, it is very common for us to separate belief from practice. I believe in global warming, but I drive a gas-guzzling SUV 14 miles to the gallon. I don't recycle anything. Um, I am a physician, and I bring health and healing and work at a local hospital, but I stand outside that hospital and smoke like a chimney while I'm eating a jelly donut, Right? Uh, Langston Moore, one of my friends back here, posted on social media yesterday a sign in Fondren somewhere out in the neighborhood that said it was posted September of 2013, four years ago, and it said a hearing is uh, scheduled and we are going to meet about these potholes. And nothing has been done in four years. Right now, we believe we should do something about the potholes, but we don't practice it, do we? There seems to be a stalemate, an impasse. We just can't do something about what we know is important. And so we, in our minds, we have a dichotomy. We separate what we believe and what we practice or not. But in Scripture, there is this idea of wholeness. Uh, We would say in our day of integrity, where to believe something, there's no separation. To believe something is to practice it. Consider what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers. For here we go. For I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders. For I obey your precepts. More insight than my teachers. More understanding than the elders. How many college students do we have in here? You, that's, that's who you want to be in college, right? If you're at Bellhaven or Millsaps or Jackson State or wherever. I mean, Mississippi College, like, you want to show up and say that to your teachers and professors, right? I have more insight. I have more understanding. Pretty cocky, don't you think? I mean, that, he's got some swag. David's got some swag as he writes that. But look, I think he's on to something. I think he's on to this reality that the word, it has an intention for us to actively live it out. To actively live it out. I think I failed to mention this last week in the 11 o'clock I did in the 930 service in the gym last Sunday. But there is a word, a, a fancy word called hermeneutics. It's the principles and processes of biblical interpretation. It's how to read. It's the art and science of how to read the Bible. Hermeneutics. Isn't that a great word? In seminary, I wrote a, a played a guitar and wrote a, a skit. I wrote a song called Herman the Nudist. We needed some levity and some lightness in that seminary class. I got extra credit for it. But hermeneutics is just a fancy word of saying, how do you read the Bible? Do you know how to read it? Do you read it? Do you read it well? Can you gain from it as you read it? But I can tell you in seminary that we learned a lot about text and pretext and syntax and grammar and parsing words. And we learned a lot of technical stuff that is helpful. But not once did we talk about obedience. 
the rabbis in Jesus' day had this saying, we learn more from our feet than we do with our ears. Actually doing something with what the scripture says. Can I say it again? It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to read it. It's not enough to believe it. We must actually get to a point where we live it out. It becomes a part of our lives. We meditate, delight in it, and we obey it. Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 give us a promise, and maybe we're moving toward the end and toward the question why. Why would we do this? Why would we devote ourselves to these ancient writings? Why would we do something that seems difficult? Those passages, the canonical seems, give us this idea that we do it and the result is, we've got to be careful, but the result is success and prosperity. Now many times over and a couple of times recently, I've stood here and denounced prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is alive and well in our day. It is young and hip and cool and sexy. It's a big part of our culture. You do this, God will do that. In fact, our idea of success and prosperity can be that house on the hill, the new Range Rover every six months, the spouse that looks like a model, millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, and just this reality that bad things don't happen. And we reject that. In fact, part of following Jesus and understanding his word as God moves the story forward is to understand that success is Jesus. We look to him, a life well lived amidst pain and suffering on this side of the resurrection. But I do want to say what the scripture teaches. The one who meditates, the one who delights, the one who obeys, the one who puts feet to what God says. That person, God says, you will be successful And you will prosper. So change your picture of success and prosperity. Fascinating. In the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word for success is the word for wisdom. Wisdom, it runs, it weaves itself throughout Scripture. It's ultimately found in the person of Jesus. In Proverbs, we're told to seek three things. Do you know what they are? I teach this sometimes. Seek three things above all else. Can you name them? Knowledge, understanding, but above that, wisdom. Knowledge is statistics and data, it's facts. Then there is understanding, it's giving order, priority, and sequence to those facts and statistics and data. But then there's wisdom, that's the acumen, that's the ability, that's the skill to live life well. Have you ever read the Psalms and Proverbs? Generally speaking, it says this, the wise person, life goes well. But for the foolish and stupid stupid person, they crash and burn. Now, there are exceptions all over the place. Look at Ecclesiastes. Look at Job. Look at other wisdom literature that God in his sovereignty gives us. But God wants us. He wants to bless your life. He wants to give you success. He wants to prosper you. So picture Jesus. Picture wisdom. So I'm going to close by reading something about reading. How do we read the Bible when so many of us just don't want to read? This from Philip Yancey um, about how we're losing our soul in America because we don't read. 
an article in Business Insider studied pioneers like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, Arthur Blank, and others. Most of them have in common a practice the author calls the five-hour rule, where they set aside an hour, at least an hour a day, or more than five hours a week for deliberate, slow learning. Bill Gates reads 50 books a year. Mark Zuckerberg reads at least one book every two weeks. Mark Cuban reads for more than three hours every day. Arthur Blank, co-founder of Home Depot, reads two hours a day. When asked about secrets to success, Warren Buffett pointed to a stack of books, and he said, I read hundreds of pages like this every day. And that's how knowledge works. It builds up like compound interest. All of you can do it, but I guarantee not many of you will. Nevertheless, neuroscience proves that what each of these busy people have found. Listen to this, y'all. It actually takes less energy to focus intently than to zip from task to task. After an hour of contemplation or deep reading, a person ends up less tired and less neurochemically depleted thus more able to tackle mental challenges. He goes on to say books in ways that are different than visual art, music, radio, even love, force us to walk through another one's thoughts one word at a time over hours and days, and we share our minds with the writer. Slowness and forced reflection required that by that medium is unique. Books recreate someone else's thoughts in our own mind. One-to-one mapping of someone else's thoughts without external stimuli is what gives books their power. Books force us to let someone else's thoughts inhabit our minds completely. We are in a war and technology wields the heavy equipment and the weight. Part of what allows me to be shaped by Scripture. Now, y'all know how extroverted I am, right? Okay? So everybody's without excuse. But it's to get alone. To know that I need Him. If you don't know that you need Him, just pastor a church. You'll know that you need Him. And so much of my life has just been knowing that I need Him. And in fogs of confusion, I sit... And I say no to people, and I say no to screens, and I read, and I turn it over and turn it over. And there's that part of me, especially for the first 10 or 15 minutes, that wants to go be with people. But I realize there's a drain out there, and when I'm alone and I'm with him, Isaiah 30, 15 puts it this way. In rest and repentance, there is strength and quietness and trust. There is salvation. Anybody know that verse? And at the end of that verse, it says, but you would have none of it. So my burden is for the church. My burden is for us to become readers, to become readers of the word, to let God supernaturally over time change our taste, to change the palate. And what is fatty and sugary and empty calories, we can not desire that as much as the word that gives us substance. In Peter, to a church that was being wrecked with persecution, he says the word is milk that nourishes us. Would you pray with me as we close?